Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this very first episode of The Policy Dispatch, a brand new podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm your host, Sam Morgan, here to guide you through the interesting and increasingly important world of energy policies. Every two weeks, we'll bring you easy to digest episodes that will cover everything from renewable energy and carbon markets to hydrogen trains and sustainable agriculture, plus all the points in between. To kick off this new series, we're going to focus on an issue that is a fundamental piece of the energy transition jigsaw, the one that is perennially overlooked, buildings. There is one statistic that is bandied about the EU climate and energy scene possibly more than any other, but it always bears repeating. 40% of the EU's energy consumption is down to buildings, which then creates 36% of the bloc's greenhouse gas emissions. Those are stark, frighteningly huge numbers, but ultimately unsurprising, considering we spend most of our time in buildings, many of which are old, leaky and inefficient. So if objectives like climate targets, preventing people from sliding into fuel poverty and improving human health are actually to be met, cash has to be splashed and big renovations carried out everywhere. That is why the EU for a number of years now has had a set of rules specifically dedicated to govern the issue, known as the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, or the EPBD. Just like every other piece of green EU legislation, the EPBD is currently under review. So what does this update hope to achieve? What are the main challenges? And how do you make it sure that it's in sync with other energy laws? Well, to delve into all of this, we are lucky enough to have with us today uh, Kieran Cuff, a member of the European Parliament representing the Greens. Kieran is actually leading the review of the EPBD on behalf of the Parliament, so is probably by some margin uh, the best placed person to speak to about buildings policy. Hi, Kieran. Uh, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Fantastic. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll delve straight into it. Um, and I'll basically ask you, have buildings been overlooked in climate policy making up to this point? Well, you know, I think they have. Uh, and I think back to, to my training as an architect and uh, as an urban planner. And I think we learned a lot about what buildings look like. Uh, we learned a lot about how to build them. But we didn't think of them as being on the front line of the uh, fight to tackle climate change. And I think in terms of policy making, uh, they were overlooked. We talk a lot about um, energy production, uh, power generation. We talk a lot about agriculture, certainly here in Ireland. Uh, we talk a lot about transport. But buildings perhaps were the, the poor relation in climate policy up until quite recently. But research shows that buildings are responsible for 40% of the energy use in Europe and over a third of the greenhouse gas emissions. So it's time they were put under the spotlight. Uh, and I think there's a lot we can do in a short space of time to improve their energy performance and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. You're, you're leading the report that the Parliament is writing about the EPBD. There's this big review going on. Um, I mean, from your point of view, 
the measures that are included in this legislation, what, what has the biggest potential to be a game changer in that regard to get people renovating their buildings, governments, public bodies, you name it, uh, to really sort of spur this towards the kind of renovation rates that, that are needed for these climate targets to even be remotely um, achieved? Yeah, well, I, I think every every member state, every country is at a, a different stage in terms of its own building stock, uh, in terms of their level of ambition. So what I want to really emphasize in the review of this law, the review of this Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, is something called minimum energy performance standards. And this essentially is a way of ensuring that by a certain date, different types of buildings will meet a minimum level of energy performance standard. Of course, we want every building to get an A energy rating by the year 2050. But where are we going to be by 2027 or 2030 or 2040? Uh, so I think it's really important that we set a level of building performance in every country, in each of the 27 countries around the EU and say, look, this is where we want to be by 2030, 2040, and we want everything to have an A energy rating by 2050. So minimum energy performance standards or MEPs are, I think, the most important part of this file. I mean, has that been one, maybe one of the things that has been lacking the most from, from buildings legislation in the EU and, and other countries, perhaps, is this, like you say, the milestones, the dates by which you have to do things? Were, were people given too much flexibility in the past? I, I think in some countries they, uh, there wasn't even flexibility. It was just a, a laissez-faire approach of, of do what you like. Uh, but if we look around Europe, we can see that countries like Denmark, the Netherlands, France, even Scotland within the UK have put in place these minimum performance standards. And it tends to improve not just the um, greenhouse gas reductions, but it, it means that we get more comfortable buildings for um, the people who live there. Uh, and I think over the last few years, we've spent a lot of time indoors due to COVID. Uh, we understand the importance of a healthy environment within our buildings. But I think we are all envious of buildings um, in the Nordic countries where you take it for granted that you will be uh, cosy and comfortable indoors. Sure, the Danes even invented the word hygge to, to mean a comfortable home. And I think that's what we want to see in every member state from Cyprus to Portugal uh, to other countries around Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we go beyond just the, the, the sheer act of renovating buildings to bring down emissions and, and bring down energy prices, as, uh, energy bills, sorry, as well, um, how can this legislation you're working on be used to spur sort of green technology in other areas? I mean, if I look back to the last EPBD, um, electrical vehicle charging capability uh, was included in, in certain requirements for new buildings. Correct me if I'm wrong, of course. Um, could this new reform that you're doing include perhaps more um, ambitious versions of that or even new things like heat pump requirements or solar panels or something like this? How do you go around sort of um, writing that into these new rules? Well, well, I think it has to. And uh, in terms of the amendments that I am pushing as the lead negotiator or the rapporteur in the file, uh, I'm raising the ambition when it comes to charging uh, for vehicles so that every new home, uh, every renovated home should be able to charge uh, a car, a scooter, uh, an e-bike or whatever you use uh, to get around. Um, and I think 
this is happening very rapidly around Europe. Uh, the amount of electric cars, uh, I was up in Denmark uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I couldn't get over the uh, rapid transformation of, of that country to um, increased electric car ownership. And if we do this right, the home you live in, the roof over your head can power the vehicle that sits in your driveway. And there's a wonderful, almost seamless connection between housing and urban mobility. Uh, and not just in private car use, but if you renovate an apartment block, uh, you can put in maybe uh, some car spaces that allow shared vehicles uh, to be charged from the roof or the walls of that building. And uh, so e-charging is certainly one way we can really move quickly. But I think there's also huge potential uh, to use rooftop solar to provide the energy, the electricity you need within the house uh, to heat your water, to provide your heating, certainly in the summer months, um, uh, your, your, your water heating. Uh, and then, of course, with the increased use of heat pumps, which are a bit like a fridge that works in reverse, uh, we can make really good use of the electricity we have, which is tending to get greener uh, around Europe and use that electricity to both heat and cool our homes. Uh, and you may have heard Franz Timmermans, the executive vice president of the European Commission, talk about this. He's positively evangelical about heat pumps and rooftop solar with the Repower EU initiative. And he's right, you know, within the next couple of years, if we boost the amount of heat pumps, if we boost the amount of rooftop solar, we can make a huge dent in climate action and also in reducing our dependency on Russian um, oil and gas. The fridge that works in reverse is a great way to describe a heat pump. I'll have to steal that for one of the articles because I've been really uh, struggling to actually, uh, you know, explain how these uh, magic machines actually work. You know, it's a, it's a good way to. Um, I mean, you're talking about. Um, solar power as well on, on rooftops. Uh, there is, of course, other uh, climate legislation. All of it's up for review at the moment as well. The, the energy efficiency directive, the renewable energy directive, even the, the AFID infrastructure directive. H how do you ensure that the legislation you're working on, the buildings directive, um, is coherent with this other legislation? I think it's fair to say in the past that EU policymaking hasn't always, um, you know, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. Um, how do you avoid that this time around? Well, I think the, the European Commission is working very hard to try and ensure there's both kind of horizontal and vertical uh, links and cohesion between the different files. In fact, they've used this kind of image of a honeycomb to show that everything is connected. For me personally, as a rapporteur, I'm working closely with my own colleagues um, within my own political group, but also uh, with other groups to make sure that the different files aren't contradicting uh, themselves. Uh, I mean, for instance, I was a, a shadow rapporteur for the Renewable Energy Directive and the uh, Green Aviation Fuels file, the, the SAFs in TRAN, in the Transport Committee. So I'm trying to, uh, in a sense, micromanage some of what's going on there. But I have to work with others. I have to work with others within my political group and within the entire parliament of 705 MEPs. And then, of course, 
I do sit down on a fairly regular basis with my colleagues in the European Commission. And it's really good to have a sounding board with them so that there isn't any huge surprises when we uh, come down to trialogues uh, towards the end of the autumn or early in the new year. Mm-hmm. If we just we just go back to this um, the sort of the, the changes that this legislation wants to spur, you know, mass renovations, um, more uh, renewable energy linked to buildings, of course, as well. This all requires um, people to install this, maintain it, so on and so forth. Um, is there anything in this legislation that you want to you know highlight that will increase um, you know support for the labour market for graduate schemes, that kind of thing? That actually will mean there is enough you know people with expertise know how to actually do these things in the future i know the the holy grail of creating this economy this clean energy economy um will have to run on people you know so is there anything that you are working on with the eppd that will um add to that let's say i I guess ultimately this piece of legislation is focused on providing standards for where we want buildings to be uh, in all countries around the eu But the implication has to be that we need um, a skilled up workforce and there's lines of text within the file that talk about the need to upskill our construction construction workers. And that's everybody from the unskilled worker to the professional to the craftsperson. Uh, And some countries are doing great work on this. They're providing short courses uh, that help you if you're a gas uh, boiler installer uh, you can be retrained to work on heat pump installation and you know none of this is rocket science it's often elementary plumbing that needs to be put in place uh, obviously with heat controls um, but it's not as if we're reinventing the wheel here Uh, and I think for most people working in the construction sector a few days of upskilling can give them the skills they need to provide the homes for tomorrow. Zero energy homes, uh, uh, zero. Uh, uh, and I, I think this this is a really powerful idea. Uh, I think people are motivated as well. They've seen what's happening in Ukraine. They've seen the kind of the images on their TV screens of droughts and wildfires. Uh, they know we need to do something. Uh, and I think they are the green workers that we need uh, to tackle climate change. So I think the motivation is there, uh, but it does come down quite often to the individual member state and what the um, the the national governments are doing to upskill workers within their own countries. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism it's just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. You mentioned Ukraine, uh, of course, and, and that has had a massive impact on, on how Europe is looking at its energy and climate sector, not just Europe, of course, the rest of the world. Um, but has Russia's horrible invasion of Ukraine m- made your job easier in some regard or more complex? Because you can call now upon a lot of public and political will in a way. I mean, we look at sort of you know different governments saying you know, insulated homes are what's going to, um, you know, help us ride out this winter crisis that's coming because of lower energy supply from Russia, blah, 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 blah. Um, or, or like I say, has it made it more complex with 
the cost of living crisis that is happening in a lot of countries where people will now see renovations as a, oh, you know, that's not something I want to spend my money on um, because I don't have it anymore because of inflation and so on and so forth. So how do you see the, the sort of events of the last six months playing out with the work that you want to achieve? I think the bigger picture is that it's made my job easier. But obviously, um, fuel bills have skyrocketed over the last 12 months. And people are looking really with, with fear and apprehension at the months ahead. And I think there is a role there for both the European Union and for national governments to make it easier to reduce people's energy bills. So we see a lot of incentives and initiatives um, to help people provide the insulation they need or simple things like um, controllable valves on the radiators within their home. Uh, so without spending 20,000 on a huge deep retrofit of you know, meters of solar panels and a new heat pump, there's still an awful lot that people can do. Uh, so I think we need to help people make the simple changes. Uh, and I think the, the rise in energy prices and the headlines of, about climate change are helping to achieve that. But I think there is a really important role for both the European Union, the Commission, and the financial institutions to take a lead. I mean, we've heard about the, uh, the European Investment Bank rebranding itself as a climate bank, and they are doing things like giving large chunks of money to cities to renovate social housing stock. I mean, that's a really effective case of climate action. But I think we need to do more. I think we need to work with the European Central Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and with private capital to make available low interest money to allow people to upgrade their homes. Because we see the difference. We see the reduction in energy bills that you get if you put in a deep energy retrofit. Uh, but people do need help because it can be the price of a new car to, to upgrade your home. Uh, and money is tight. Um, so I think there is a continued role for um, national governments and the financial institutions as well as the European Commission to help. Timmermans is doing this. He's talking about the Repower EU. He's talking about solar panels on every roof and more heat pumps. I mean, heat pumps is almost becoming uh, a political uh, byword for, for climate action. Uh, but we do need uh, the money and the workforce uh, to to deliver on all of this. And that, I think, is where the EPBD, the, this, this directive, uh, will help push national governments into action. And, and I'm pretty optimistic about what can be done, certainly in the medium term on this. I mean, talking about heat pumps being political, I, I just had a thought about how you know, uh, different countries have been banded together under the important projects of common European interest banner to do gigafactories for batteries and, and even hydrogen now, semiconductors, all of this trying to, I guess, create European champions to, you know, help us solve various crises and whatnot. Would you support something similar then with this kind of technology, with heat pumps? You know, you, you start putting billions of euros into different factories, training people to make these and actually, you know, having some real tangible results for it. Yeah, I think we need to do this. And we've noticed over the last decade that a lot of the um, renewable technologies have shifted overseas. So photovoltaic production has gone to China. Uh, so I think we want to bring that production back to Europe or at least complement uh, the work that China is doing here. 
Um, so, yeah, uh, we need the equivalent of gigafactories for solar panels and for heat pumps. Um, but I think we can do this. Uh, uh, and I think it's it's technology that can be scaled up quite rapidly in Europe. Um, but we need to get beyond the rhetoric. Uh, and I just saw the other day there was a, a report from the European Court of Auditors saying that the Repower EU requires 200 billion euro, but we're only providing 20 billion. We're only providing 10% of it. So we have to get beyond the rhetoric and we have to really push to make the changes within each uh, country around Europe. And that isn't easy. And it requires um, it requires people on the front line to make this happen. Uh, and I look to people like my colleague, Claude Termes, who's the Minister for Energy in Luxembourg. Uh, obviously, my uh, we, we have green colleagues in government uh, in eight countries, I think, around Europe. Um, but I think we need to both communicate this as climate action, but also as a way of stimulating the European economy in terms of jobs, uh, in terms of stimulating innovation and new solutions, uh, and also protecting uh, Europe, protecting people's homes, protecting people's livelihoods. And if you take all those different factors, I think it will find broad political appeal. Because I've realized that kind of when I wake up in the morning and ask people, you've got to do this to save the earth, uh, you often get kind of blank stares from politicians of a certain persuasion. But if I say to people, we've got to do this to wean ourselves off Russian fuel, some people understand. If I say we've got to do this to stimulate green jobs in Europe, others agree. And if I say we've got to do this uh, to bring about uh, a socially just transition, then there's other politicians who listen. So I think we need to phrase it and sell it using lots of different lines. But I think there is enthusiasm across the board politically, and that's what I'm hoping to harness when I go into the next shadows meeting in mid-September on this file. I really don't envy uh, the the work you have to put in to, to create, you know, this different support by by basically talking up things that uh, I think to a lot of people seem pretty obvious. But um, obviously, the argument has to be made. Um, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about money, um, there's this 800 billion euro COVID recovery fund that was agreed a while ago. The European Commission is doling out different parts of it to the 27 member states. Well, almost all of them at the moment. Uh, we won't go there at the moment. Um, but is that something that really is um, going to be a, a game changer, to use that word again, for building renovations? Or is it a bit of a missed opportunity at the moment where money perhaps isn't going to be going where it needs to be done, in, in your view? Yeah, it has to be done right. And uh, I we need, we absolutely need to be careful that we don't squander the recovery and resilience money. And I do worry, for instance, when I look at Italy, where they have something called the Eco Bonus, uh, which gives you 110% of the money that you require for a renovation. It's more of a blunderbuss than a scalpel. And I think we have to be careful that we don't just throw money at this. Uh, we need to do it right. Um, and I don't think it makes sense to have people renovating their holiday homes that they're only, only going to use for one or two months over the summer. So I think there are lessons to be learned from doing it incorrectly. And again, going back to the European Court of Auditors, they looked at various energy savings schemes around Europe and they said in none of the schemes that they looked at did somebody measure the level of energy use before 
and measure the level of energy use afterwards. And this would seem to me like the most elementary thing that you have to do if you're giving somebody out money. So, so I do think we need to use the money wisely. And I think it does vary between one member state and another. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I was struck earlier this week, I saw a graph of the number of renovations done in the United Kingdom between, I think, 2000 and, and the current date. Uh, and there's this huge um, uptick, first of all, towards millions of homes every year. Uh, and then around 2010, when different green bonuses were scrapped by the Conservative government, this huge downtick. And it's only just recently started to, to go back up again. Is there anything that you can do from an EU legislation point of view that would um, implement some sort of, you know, no retreat clause or something, you know, that if um, governments use EU money for certain things, they can't then scrap that scheme because obviously, like we've said before in, in the last um, few minutes or so, um, people need certainty milestones to actually do these big projects. You know, is there anything there that you, you could um, theoretically even do? I, I think we need um, to have milestones along the way, uh, along the road to carbon neutrality by by 2050. Um, and I think quite often we set 10-year or 20- or 30-year um, uh, timelines, but I think we almost need a plan every five years to review where we're going and where we want to go. And within the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, I, I've, I'm reinforcing that because I think we really need to look and see where we go to in five years, in 10 years, and in 15 years. And that graph from the UK shows that if you don't keep your eye on the ball, you fall behind. Um, And I think every year over the next 30 years, we need to renovate 2% of Europe's homes, 2 or 3% of Europe's homes, if we want to get to climate neutrality. That means we have to double the renovations rates, at least double the renovation rates that we currently have. And that means that um, governments need to take a lot of action um, to do this, to upskill workers, to provide the funding, to provide the incentives, and to provide the regulations that make this happen. Let me give you just a simple example. If you move into a rented home, that's a trigger point where, where the lease changes on that building. I think it makes sense to say, look, in five years' time, we, we want to have a D energy rating for that home. In 10 years' time, a C energy rating. In 15 years, a B. And gradually set the milestones for the road to uh, net zero. But I think if we simply say, oh, we'll get to an A rating by 2050, and then forget about it for the next 25 years, we're in deep trouble. So I think every country needs to have a requirement to move quickly on this because the low-hanging fruit can really deliver results. But we've got to mandate the low-hanging fruit and make sure that countries move in the 2020s, the 2030s, and not just wake up in the 2040s and say, oh, we have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, this seems to be a hell of a lot of work ahead of you, Kieran, but I, I do wish you the best of it. Perhaps before we sign off, you could give us um, some sort of key dates that are ahead, um, you know, plenary votes, when you start um, negotiations with the commission and, and council, you know, when, when can we start to sort of expect results, shall we say? Well, we have our next shadows meeting. Our next big meeting on it uh, happens in, I think, is it the 12th of September? I'm just looking at my wall wall chart here. I think in the week of the the 12th of of September. Uh, And then I'd imagine every 
fortnight every two weeks. We'll be moving things on into October. We have a committee vote in the Energy Committee, the ITRI Committee, uh, towards the end of November. Uh, and I think we will try and get it through by the end of the year at plenary or certainly in January, moving into trialogues in late winter, early spring. Um, so we, we really want to move on this. And the European Commission is saying uh, to me, uh, can we move Can we move quickly? I'm saying, yes, I want to. Um, I, I'm One kind of little kind of elephant in the room is the Czech presidency. Um, and I do worry a little bit that they might not have the level of ambition that we've seen from other countries. Uh, Sweden takes over the helm in January. I think they get this and they really want to move fast. But I, I do sense the mood music from, from Czechia is, look, maybe don't move too quickly because there's a war on. Uh, whereas I would say, look, we've got to move even faster. We've got to isolate Putin by insulating homes. There we go. There's the sound point, I think. It's a good one as well. Uh, thank you, Kieran, for um, joining us and sharing us your insights with this. It's, um, it's clearly a hugely important uh, part of this energy transition puzzle that we're trying to work on here at Foresight. So thank you very much for joining us. A real pleasure, as always, Sam. Good talking to you. Fantastic. Thanks, Kieran. It's probably a bit of an exaggeration to say that if we solve the building's puzzle, then the energy transition will just be a piece of cake. Uh, but it will certainly make the shift to a clean economy all the more smoother. Remember those dates that Kieran outlined for us? We can expect important milestones before the end of the year, and then crunch talks at the beginning of 2023, all against the backdrop of a winter that probably threatens to be extremely challenging for society at large. Uh, for more info about a building's policy, take a look at the latest Foresight magazine, which is dedicated to energy efficiency. You'll find details on the website. Thank you for tuning in to this debut episode of the Policy Dispatch. We hope that you've heard enough to make this a regular addition to your podcast playlist. We'll be back in two weeks for another edition. In the meantime, look out for our older sibling, Foresight's What Matters podcast. Thanks to my producer, Anna Gumbau. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>